0: Salespeople will tell you it's an art, okay? But it's also a science. You need to have a repeatable sales motion. You need to know exactly what needs to happen, how many calls, how long this is gonna take, and you need something that you can show works for a number of large accounts or, or a very large number of small accounts. And only after you have that and you have done the math and you can show that there's, you know, that your return on investment is, you know, within months, only then go and say, okay, now I'm ready to scale.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Tech Sales Class with me, James Hounslow, and today I'm very excited to have on the show Alex Zeltzer, who is uh, co-founder and CEO of uh, Ensure AI. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great, James. Thank
0: you very much for having me appreciate it
1: no worries let me give the 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 viewers a bit of a background as to why I'm excited and and was keen to have you on the show today Um, you're based out in Israel you've got an Israeli tech startups there's a number of fantastic Israeli startups in the tech scene particularly based out of Tel Aviv the reason why I was keen to have you on the show and talk to you about your experience is that you've worked for large corporate organizations But one of the key things, the key success factors for an Israeli startup is being successful in North America, because unlike most countries, if you start in Israel, your clients are probably outside of Israel and North America is is the place where a large number of those clients are going to be. And you have spent a number of years building a company in North America, understanding the cultural differences and how to make that successful. And then you've come back to Israel and you're doing it all over again. So you're a second time founder with a heap of experience in building in North America. And I'm hoping that we can just tap into just a, a small amount of your learns that you've picked up along the way that you're um, using for Insure AI um, today. And then we'll hear all about Insure AI and what they're about. So a little bit of a, a waffle at the start. It would probably be a really good place to start, Alex, if you just give a little snapshot of who you are
0: sure sure so i i'll, I'll uh, you know i'll start with a little bit of uh, you know my my family and, uh, yeah. and a little bit about my experience uh before you know before these journeys that you've just mentioned so um, you know i'm i'm married uh, married to my my uh um, how do you call that uh, my high school sweetheart right so nice. we've, been, uh, we've been married i have to get it right right so i have been married now for over over 25 years
1: Congratulations! Uh, pretty Good time,
0: We got uh, we got three uh, three uh, beautiful kids. Um, you know that's the core of my yeah. being. Like everybody else, I think we've lived all of our lives in Israel, except for three years that uh, that we've done together as a family in Chicago, where indeed I uh, I ran one of the startups. I, I was actually born in Russia, but uh, my parents moved uh, when I was two, so don't really remember a lot about yep. it. Obviously. Uh, so kind of born and raised almost born and raised in israel and and spent my entire life uh, you know, in the high-tech industry since uh, since finishing school. i I'm, you know, I'm an engineer by uh, by profession and uh, and and continued on to my MBAs uh, immediately after that and then and then started uh, you know, the journey within different corporates. So um as you mentioned, i've I've been in the corporate world as well. i've I've done two large corporates, one an Israeli corporate called Converse where, I led um, a pretty large group on one of the lines of business we had. Uh, at the time, it was called Unified Messaging, a company called Converse. My group was somewhere between 90 and 250 people throughout you know, the seven years that I, uh, that I spent there. I was then brought on board to run a company that a large French company acquired in Israel. So a company called Deso Systems acquired a company in Israel called Smart Team, and they brought me on board uh, to run that a few years after the acquisition. And uh, that's where I primarily dealt with sales, very Mm -hmm. different sales world at the time, because it was not SAS, it was was virtual licenses. We still uh, had had to manufacture CDs at the time. So a very different experience, I think, than than what we have today with uh, dealing with a lot of VARs. We've created a value-added reseller channel Mm -hmm. worldwide with 350 different VARs uh, servicing that. We took the business from about 30 million to 100 million uh, in revenue f- within four years, which is a nice, nice right. And that's basically when uh, I felt the itch to uh, to go on the startup journey. Uh, I had the itch uh, from day one, to be honest, but uh, I intended to be, I remember that when I joined Converse, I told them I'm going to be there for six to eight months and then uh, move on. And uh, obviously I stayed for more than seven years. So, you know, you you have you, you have your plans and then you have reality that kind of steps in. So the first startup was really a a B2C startup that was an online farmer's market. Very early on, right? We launched the farmer's market in 2009. So very, I would say, before almost anyone else. A very different market than it is today uh, following COVID. Uh, So doing online grocery delivery and being able to deliver from small farms and small manufacturers around each metro area uh, was was a great challenge at the time. Uh, so we've we've built the startup company, we built the high tech company, but we also built the logistics. We built, uh, you know, the drivers and trucks and the cooling spaces and rooms eventually started from refrigerators grew into rooms and all of that. So did the entire journey it was a very, very interesting journey. And, and that's, by the way, the first time that we've decided, you know, to launch and not be in Israel. We did the math, right? There's just simply no business case to do some, something yeah. like in Israel, at least at the time. And which is why we did that in the U.S. and eventually launched uh, Dallas, Chicago, and Denver and uh, operated that for a while. I then uh, we, we sold uh, to a large uh, grocery chain uh, in the Midwest. And, and I came back to Israel uh, intending to take uh, like uh, six, at least six to 12 months off. And uh, unfortunately, a month into it, I found myself at Zik. A good friend that, uh, that I knew from the past has uh, started his own company. They raised 10 million and started scaling can you come help? And um, I said, sure, I'll come in for three, four months and then see what's going on. You see, it's a repeated uh, scenario in my uh, in my career probably and stayed there for for almost three years. And we took the company again from when I joined, we were doing uh, probably 350, 400K a month. Um, that was September of 16. And in January of 18, so almost 18 months later, we were doing 11 million a month. That's a very you know a very interesting trajectory to be part of as well, and at that point in time we um, we decided to spin out a piece of the technology that we've developed there and uh, founded Ensure AI based on that. So no, I won't go into the details on the technology and yep. all of that. That's not the the aim for our talk today. And ensure as well, you know, it's it's not a B two C company, so f- mm-hmm. so the cultural differences are different. It's not right? mm-hmm. so the same cultural difference that you need to understand when you go to the U.S. But same as uh, same as we've done with uh, with artisan it was clear there's no there's no real market in Israel for what we're doing. The market is outside, and we focused uh, heavily on U.S. Some Europe as well, but uh, we focused our sales organization in the U.S. And um, today, three three and a half years. Uh, into it, we have a sales organization in the US, not a very big one. We're eight people today, but uh, you know, growing. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and and so you know, we've done again the same journey of you know establishing the technology and the team here, but really selling into the American market, as you've mentioned, which I think many companies in Israel find themselves yeah. doing.
1: So, lots to dive into and uh, and try and unpack here. The first bit I would like to go into is how did you decide on building a business around groceries and north america how, where did, where did this come from
0: <laughs> that's a good question so we did a lot of work there we did that very um i would say uh, systematically because I, I didn't delve into it because it's not part of the you know it's not part of the discussion but actually we yeah. created a company that had a contract with the source system the source systems was the company that uh, originally hired me for running smarting and uh, Uh, We were very lucky and uh, and were able to um, basically uh, do something similar to a management buyout. We basically established a new company and hired all the employees there and continue to provide the source system services while having enough of a margin to start our own company at the same time, using the, the, the profits we're making on one business to fuel the startup business. So we actually had a team of 70 people on the first day that we started the startup. It's not your, you know, your, your yeah. standard journey, um, but it gave us time to really do this properly, like as you know, market research well, and uh, and 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 decide what it is that we want to do. So the first thing we decided we wanted to do was we decided we wanted to help the small businesses. The company was called Artizone, a zone mm-hmm. for artisans, and artisans are people that do stuff with their hands. Oh. And that's the basic definition. Come from from an Italian uh, word called uh, artigiano. That's the origin. And then we said, okay, so if that's what we're looking to do, let's see in what industry we want to do that, in what vertical, and, and if we're doing that, then you know what's relevant in that industry. So we looked at different industries. We we knew up front that it's going to be the U.S. because you know again. As you've mentioned, for Israeli companies doing a B2C business, it's clear that the the US market is much bigger. And there there was another element to it. Once we decided we wanted to do something that is helping artisans sell, we realized that if we want to do this, uh, for instance, Germany and do that in France, it's going to be two different companies. The behaviors of the people and their their wants and needs are so different that these are going to be two separate companies. Now, it's true that doing that, you know, for, let's say, uh, Chicago and New York versus doing that for Dallas and and not to mention Tulsa is not the same thing either. But it's not the same as doing that for, you know, for for Berlin and and Paris. Not the same problem at all, which is why we decided to go to the U.S., because it scales easier. Why did we decide we need to help the artisans? Because it was very clear that, uh, you know, the large chains were kind of taking over the world from a commerce perspective right if you look at uh, you know where the world was you know 150 years ago and, and and even before that to where the world is today today it's really being dominant by the conglomerates right it's the walmarts of the world it's it's these guys that that take that and and there's no space available for the little guys and it becomes impossible for you know a small guy to open a store on you know on fifth avenue it's possible so you open a store in some somewhere else you have very little food traffic It's difficult to stand out. On the other hand, on the internet, if you do that well, you have a chance, which is what we're seeing today, right? Etsy realized that, I think, uh, at the same period of time, maybe a little bit earlier than we did. And and we decided to take a look at e-commerce in general and identify which of the industries has the most potential to grow. And what we found is that in the US at the time, if if I remember the numbers correctly, if e-commerce was about 5% of the total total, uh, retail market, groceries were only 0.5%. And on the other hand, they were growing 10 times faster than the other industries. So if you look at the trajectory of the last three years, it was growing 10 times faster than the other industries. So it was clear that there's an opportunity. Yeah. in that market and there's still you know a huge place to grow and obviously you know uh, food retail is uh, is is half of the retail market in general worldwide same for for the us so that's how we decided to go for food and if you go for food and artisans then you go for the local producers right for the small producers the so small mom and pop shops or the real farms and um, and then we established the whole concept around it and started talking to these people And there's a huge, uh, I can take you for an hour, probably about why we started in Dallas. So I want to (laughs) to do that. But we've done that, you know, we've created a very, I would say, structured process to decide where to launch, how to launch, why to launch. And launched it
1: eventually in Dallas. So had you had experience living in North America before this or working with Americans, this was all going to be brand new to you? No, no.
0: So I did. So I did one semester as a, as a student in upstate New York. So I did one, semester, but you know, yep. three months as a student is not real life experience. Right. And I've done. I've done a lot of work with uh, with businesses, right? So yep. both so systems, and before that at Converse, I worked with a lot of companies, primarily the big ones. So at this, at, at Converse, we worked with um, we worked with telco operators. So we had a lot of deals with Sprint and AT and T at the time. Tinti Wireless, and with the so we worked with companies such as Gulfstream, um, companies such as Boeing. So uh, you know, I, I had uh, an experience working with the U.S. corporate market, definitely, but nothing on uh, on the consumer side, nothing at all, which was a very big surprise.
1: And what was the decision behind moving your family to North America to do this, rather than try and do it from Israel?
0: So I started doing it from Israel. I had no intention of going to uh, to the US. To be honest, uh, you know, we like our, it's home, right? We yeah. like it. Uh, we uh, and and the kids were not in a very easy age to uh, to move at the time. My my youngest was seven. My uh, the middle guy was eleven, and uh, and the big guy was fourteen. So it's not very easy to move them at uh, you know the the seven year old is is okay. You know he'll he'll land whatever you do, but uh, the eleven and the fourteen had, uh, had a very difficult first year. Mm. It was a tough decision, but um, the, the the trigger really was we started seeing significant growth uh, when we launched Chicago. So uh, we launched the company in 2009, mm-hmm. and we've been in Dallas for three years, kind of establishing the ground. And at the beginning of thirteen, we launched Chicago, and mm-hmm. Chicago grew insanely fast. And it was clear that we need to be closer to the business. I found myself on a plane twice a month or 10 days in the US. So, you know, being almost 20 days out of a month in the US is no way to live. So I I had to take a decision whether, you know, whether I move the family or I find another solution. And eventually, we decided that both me and one of our partners, one of my partners, uh, Leo, would move to Chicago and uh, and help grow the business from there.
1: Okay. Um, I just want to find out a little bit of the thinking around that, because You'll, you'll probably know from your network and talking to people within Israel when Israelis have set up these these companies and they've and they started to do well in the US they get caught in this dilemma does a senior person a founder go across to the US or do we hire somebody in the US to run it you took the decision to go with another partner why did you make that decision over hiring a a north american to run the business for you so so it's a, it's a myriad i, I would
0: say of uh, different aspects of the decision there's some financial aspect to it right the mm-hmm. uh, hiring a uh, someone that is at the right level to run and remember we had you know we had our r and d team in israel right we had a good business in israel mm-hmm. with r and d that was doing two things right was doing the whatever we need to do for uh, for the source systems and 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 establishing our technology for the startups for us it was a, a decision you know it's very easy to continue and maintain the services business we have for the so we have we had enough talent in the founded founding team to run that and we didn't have that in the u.s and hiring someone that is high level enough would really make my job almost obsolete right from for me right it's uh for me it was either i i take off i stay as a chairman or something like that and hire someone that's high level enough because there's no reason to pay both salaries we can manage uh, the israeli business fairly easily they doesn't need me we hire someone high level enough in the us you know i'll just step on his toes it's stupid so as as i said it's a myriad of, uh, of different aspects i think in addition to that we felt that we don't understand well enough the consumer need we as founders right and the first thing we did is we 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 started buying from artisan, right? We started getting our groceries. It was a very uh, interesting experience. I can tell you, I'll, I'll share with you one one element that um, that we found. We were always certain that we had a very good fulfillment ratio. So we knew, you know, customer satisfaction is extremely important, especially in this kind of business. And what we did is we counted, you know, total line items done. Mm-hmm. Have to deliver for a certain day let's say you have to deliver a thousand light line items for the day a small day and um, let's say you are successful in 980 of them not bad right it's you know it's 98 uh, percent fulfillment rate and um, it's good on the other hand what we didn't realize uh, and we did Im- immediately when we uh, came on board is that every order has like 50 items so if on average you lose 2% or you don't deliver 2%, then we found that 75% of the orders had at least one item missing, right? Even even though it's, you know, because you have 50 on average. Mm. So, you know, those that are above 50, most likely have one that's missing. So that's 20, maybe not, mm. but on average, find yourself that 75% of the orders were missing at least one item. And it's enough that you're missing one item to be very pissed. Yeah, Imagine you, you del- We delivered same day, uh, you know, you had planned for dinner, and now there's one ingredient left that's not there. Are you going to order again for tomorrow? Probably not. Mm. And, and and we didn't realize that, I think. Almost. We, we had a sense, but we didn't realize that until we actually had the, the opportunity to uh, to uh, to try the service for ourselves. And then we've improved it immensely. I we were, bet. We I
1: there, bet. Yeah. So, so you moved into Chicago. That's where you took yeah. your family. Um, so from Tel Aviv yeah. into Chicago? Highland Park. Highland Park. Park. Okay. 20 miles away. 20 miles I, away. So I'm really interested to know first winter in Chicago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> it was it was the la- the worst winter in 30 years. We had three polar vortexes. Oh wow! Amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah. I bet the kids, okay, the kids yeah, you know, love it. Or yeah, yeah. It was yeah, not uh, you know nice. for the kids. It's nice and it was yeah. a, uh, It was it was an experience and in three years you don't get to hate it so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you're there for longer. I've seen the people, you know, the first snow and, and the problem in Chicago is once it snows, it stays, right? It That's doesn't it, go yeah. like that, right? <laughs> it stays until April.
1: So, That's so, it.
0: Great yeah. for others, not so
1: much. <laughs> <laughs> um so one of the, the, the biggest challenges faced to growing a startup is hiring. And what did you learn from being in? North America to understanding the cultural differences to help you make better hiring decisions? It's
0: it's a good question. I don't know if I can really uh, structure it. I can tell you that the first person we hired to run Dallas, we terminated a month into it. It was a, a, a pure mistake. The second person we hired stayed with us until we shut down, until we sold, basically, until we
1: sold the company. What What do uh, you think just on that? Because look, I think one of the good things being is, is that I always say to, to people, if you're going to fail, fail quickly with yeah. someone. Don't dra- particularly like you drag things out. It doesn't yeah. help anybody. What did you learn from that first hire that you think, obviously, there was probably a little bit of luck involved in getting it. There, there's no silver yeah. So what did you do differently on that second hire in the process that might have missed in that first one that you got it wrong with?
0: So I think the first one we hired the person we thought we need. Yeah. The, 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 the corporate guy, the guy yep. that, uh, if he appears on a podcast, he it, it doesn't look like me, right? He'd be yeah. wearing a jacket. Uh, I'm, I'm with my shirt today, but uh, yeah. I'm from home and uh, you don't want to see what I'm wearing underneath. Yeah. <laughs> but you we know, we're we're t-shirt guys right yeah. and and we hired what we think is needed we were wrong what we really yeah. needed was cultural alignment yeah and that's a lot more important than anything else and we we realized that in you know in, in a very short time and and as you said i think the core to to doing it right is failing fast there's no way that you can avoid failing it's going to happen no matter what you do and I can tell you that my my process for hiring uh, stayed the same. I think from the Deso Systems day, we always have at least five people interview everyone, and yeah. everyone has a veto right. So you don't hire unless
1: everybody says yes. So a uh, so, couple of bits on that. First of all, um, I think culture is 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 huge. Yeah. And by by you and another founder going over to the US, you were able to bring the company culture with you. Yeah. Sometimes when you hire somebody in North America, they'll create their own culture. Now, it could be a culture that works, but it's not necessarily the internal DNA. Do you think you would have been able to have made the decision to cut that person so quickly had you not been in North America because you'd have been back in Israel and the cultural bit that, may not have been picked up?
0: So that, that, that happened before we moved.
1: Okay, that's Happen good. Before we
0: move, happened before we moved and so you know we hired him i spent the first uh, 10 days with him there yeah right so i i didn't just hire him and tell, told him i know good yeah. luck right that that's probably not the right way to do it and at the time we didn't have any of our own drivers it was all outsourced yeah. you know, it was a very small operation so yeah. I, I i stayed there with him for 10 days I, I i came back after the 10 days i already knew we made a mistake mm-hmm. but i wasn't sure that that it's an irrecoverable mistake yeah and after a few uh, for a couple more weeks of uh, you know of the of the conversations we've had, um, I, I saw the decisions he makes on what kind of an office space we need. Yep. I saw the decisions he makes on what kind of drivers we want to hire. I saw the decisions he makes on what's important for the business, and, yep. and I realized it's it's you know maybe he can run his own business very well, but it's definitely not going to be the business that I intend to, to have
1: there. So, so you mentioned a couple of really key points in there, particularly around culture. From from your experience, how do you interview for culture? How do you understand if someone's got that um that essential? And also, do you put that above experience? I I, I do. I put that
0: above experience, but to be very open, right? So I said we we do five people at least, right? Yeah. So let's say it's a it's a technical uh, position, right? It's uh, or even if it's a sales position. So let's say the first guy is going to interview is going to be the hiring manager, right? It's going to be either who you know the team lead in the tech team or the team lead in the sales team, and if he's not capable enough from a technical perspective or from a sales experience or whatever, then he won't move forward. So saying that, I put more f- more of an emphasis on culture is true, I think for me personally, but when you look at the entire process, I'm not sure that that it's, I, I think it's balanced, yeah. right? So so we do one, one, one such interview. We do another technical interview always. So if it's a technical uh, job, then there'll be a test. If it's a sales job, there'll be a presentation that he needs, he needs to do to someone. There'll be a, at least one more interview with HR. And then there'll be at least one interview with me. That's the minimum for right? And usually there's another one, uh, either another partner, someone higher level, et cetera. And then you ask uh, if, if you yeah. don't mind continuing that, yeah. you ask how do I interview for culture? So, so it's tough, right? It's much more complicated to decide whether someone has the cultural alignment you're looking for versus does he know how to code well enough in Java or can mm-hmm. he carry a sales presentation knowing nothing about the product, right? It's easier to mm-hmm. figure it out these out not 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 easy but easier so um so what, what we do is I, I think what we do is two things one is we do the five interviews and then we speak about the culture on mm-hmm. we always speak the five people always mm-hmm. speak together and then there's a veto right for each but that that helps because if there is zero cultural alignment you'll figure it out you won't know if there's uh, you know if there are issues you might not pick it mm-hmm. up but if there's zero, you know. The second thing is, I think it's important for people to know what we value from a cultural perspective. And um, I'll give you two examples we're using today in Ensure that are very unique, I think. I think it's unique because I think I'm unique, but uh, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe it isn't.
1: You definitely will be. You're, you're a founder. <laughs> no it
0: doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it's uh, a lot of it is uh, you know a lot of it is circumstance I think it's a lot of hard work yeah of the circumstance as well so so I think I tell people a few things about what I'm looking in people mm-hmm. number one in startups I believe there are only two types of people engines or weights there's nothing in between if someone is an engine it's very easy to identify you know the people who are engines you identify them immediately on the first meeting you go into it's the people who are weights that is difficult to identify and therefore i'm saying very simply if they're not an engine they're a weight Mm -hmm. and that's and and we we act upon it in the company as well so if someone you know is not performing well enough we will replace we've replaced a lot of people in the last year as well and we've made hiring mistakes as well but as you said it's fail fast so that's the first thing
1: yeah
0: and and just to um i don't want to sound too harsh because that's uh, that's important it's people's skills so if someone is not an engine with you today it doesn't mean mm-hmm. he's not an engine period mm-hmm. the environment you provided for him is not the right one for him he can yeah. thrive somewhere else go you know let him let him thrive somewhere else don't you know don't, yeah. don't do yourself so that's one i identify the people who are engines that are going to boost the business you cannot afford weights. So that's the number one the second one is in the corporate environment let's say this is your responsibility this square here the next person's responsibility is probably somewhere here, and there's a slight there's a slight area that is for for both of you, right? Both of you are responsible for uh, for something in, in in the middle, and it's done so by design, right? It creates some friction, okay, but then nothing falls through the cracks. Yeah. corporates are built that way. That's your responsibility. This is the next guy. This is the next guy. We have everything taken care of. In a startup world, if this is your responsibility, the next guy's responsibility is here. And there's a gap in between that is bigger than both of your responsibilities, probably. And the question is, what do people do when they see a ball on the floor? And in the, in the corporate world, the first thing you ask yourself, whose ball is it? And over and they'll take care of it. In the startup world, the first thing you need to do is pick up the ball, do whatever needs to be done in order for this to not remain on the floor, then figure out what to do for the next time it happens. And that's a very different mindset. Yep. And it's tough because you are measured on things you're not responsible for. That, that's that's what it means, right? If I expect people to pick up balls from the floor that they're not responsible for, it means I'm measuring them for things I didn't tell them that they're responsible for. And and that's the second thing that I that I tell the team, all the hiring managers, they all know that. And, and that, these are the things we're, we're trying to figure out during they're more do, during the soft part of the interview. So everybody has a soft part of the interview, not only, you know, a, a test. And, and obviously, the you know, I, I I primarily do that at the interview. And, uh, and, and so does HR.
1: Like it, like it. Going back to the you get five people and they all get a veto. I'd like to understand how you came to that and how you've made it work. And the reason why I say that is if five individuals go to a restaurant, you're all going to have lunch, but the chances are that only two of you are going to choose the same meal. So what we say there is that people enjoy different things, people look for different things. How do you get to the point where you've got five people that are all going to because that's that's quite a large number to get five people to go, right, this person's absolutely brilliant without having some source of an inkling that they're not quite right. So how did you land on five and how have you made that work?
0: So, so you know, the number five is arbitrary, right? It's yeah. a, it's a, really it's a, I think it's a factor of uh, sorry it comes from the corporate world, chiefs to yeah. India, right? Yeah, it, it depends on the size of your organization, I think. But five is a good number. I think four is okay. I think six is okay. I think that eight is not going to work, and yeah. I think two is too little. So you know, somewhere there. And actually, we came to that, you know, when I was hired at the Dassault Systems to run the organization. So I was hired into a company that was already established. The company was established in 1997. I think it was acquired by Dassault in 1999 or 2000. And I was brought on board to run it in 2005. Mm-hmm. So a while into it. So yeah. it had culture, had people. I've replaced 50% of the, of the people in the first year. And we terminated half of them in the second year. And that's when we decided something is broken. Yeah. We figured out, you know, so okay. So what do we need to do? What was the reason that that happened? What do we need to do differently? And we changed that, and uh, you know, and we we became much better than that. And I carry that from from since then. We've decided to do that. I think in two thousand and seven, and I've been doing that uh, ever since. <laughs>
1: Look at why it's uh, why it's broken. Find a solution and stick by it. It's a it's a trait of of most successful um, leaders. There, I want to fast forward now to when you moved to Zeke, okay, because you touched on something quite significant: the uptick in monthly recurring revenue. Yep. The people that are listening to this this podcast are going to be founders, sales leaders, and VCs. I want to understand from a sales perspective what part you played in and how you ramped up such a significant uptick in revenue from the day you arrived what what was the situation when you arrived and then we'll start looking at what key changes you've made or implemented to help them on that that journey
0: i I won't take zeke as an example because it's a very rare example and it's b2c
1: yeah
0: very different than b2c and b2b i'll touch upon it in, in in a minute but you know, we're scaling very nicely at Insure AI now, and yeah. we've scaled so as well very fast. So I want to take you through what um, what I learned from, from these experiences because they're very different than, than coming in to a B2C company. And I can tell you that for me, product market fit was already there at Z, And it was really about scaling the operations to support such a growth. It was not about how do you get that to scale. It was really about, you know, you... You pump in, you know, marketing spend and you get results. question is, how do you do that efficiently? One of the things that I that I wanted to point out is a startup journey is a journey in reducing risks, generally speaking, right? You start, you have an idea. The first risk you, uh, you put to rest is, does it work, right? Can this be done? Um, usually you create an MVP, a minimum viable product. You test it, you see. And, and at some point you say, yeah, yeah, it can be done here. You see, there's a proof. Can be done and then the second piece which is very difficult obviously and by, by the way most startups succeed in the first step that's easy okay. even if they fail they convince themselves that they've succeeded <laughs> easy on that. and then the second phase is you go for product market fit you go look for product yep. market fit, and that's a tricky one right uh, most of the startups fail on this one so product market fit is it means that there are people that are willing to buy whatever you're selling for more than what it costs you to create it right? Because obviously there's no problem. For, uh, let's say I have a business that says you come to me with a dollar, you get two. There's a great product market fit for that, but that's not a business. That's something else. So you need someone that, uh, you know, someone would come to you with two dollars. It costs you a and, dollar. And and there are a lot of them that yeah. want to do that, right? So, so you need to find that. And that's not easy. And it's different between B2C and B2B. It's different on B2B You know, if you're doing, you know, a company that uh, sells a license for a hundred bucks a month or you're doing something that sells for a hundred thousand dollars a month, it's, you know, if you're if you're selling a hundred thousand dollars a month, if you have three paying customers, you probably have product market fit. If you have if it's for a hundred dollars a month, you need probably three hundred or a thousand of them to show product market fit. You need to show that there is enough of a scale there. Uh, so that that's the first element. The second uh, risk that you need to put to rest. The mm-hmm. third one is go to market fit. Now you have something that works. You can charge for it more than it costs you. But now you mm-hmm. need to create the sale or deliver the sale at a cost that would not be prohibitive for the business. And then you go into cac to ltv right? Customer acquisition cost versus lifetime value. And you need to show that you can return your customer acquisition costs in a reasonable Timeframe, right? So, if you, for instance, you have that business where you're selling something for a hundred thousand dollars a year, let's say, and it costs you, you know, ten million to bring the, the client. Excellent. So, a hundred years from now, you'll uh, have return on investment. It doesn't work that well, right? On the other hand, if you find a way to bring someone at fifty k, hundred k in a year, then you get your, uh, you know, your ROI in six months. It's not bad. So, so you have to figure that one out, and and it's tough because at first you get the people who are the early adopters and it's easier to get them uh, most people believe that customer acquisition costs go down with time that's mm-hmm. not the it. it actually goes up at first and you need to figure out that you've identified what is really possible and find the right channel right is it direct sales is it uh, you know marketing is it VARs or mm-hmm. you know And at that point, that's where I'm going back to the scale issue. Only at that point can you really start scaling the business. So a lot of companies make the mistake of going for scale after product market fit. They got product market fit. They feel great because when you get product market fit, you know, it sells. It really sells well. And then you're saying, okay, so let's sell everything. Let's sell as fast as we can. And then you fail. You fail for various reasons. You fail because the customer acquisition cost is much higher than you expected. (laughs) You fail because you don't hire well enough, and half of the people, you know, half of the salespeople you 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 hire, you're going to find yourself terminating. It's it's just mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is what it is. So you fail for many reasons at, at that point in time. And what I've learned is that you need to identify that point where you can actually scale really well. So that's after you have product market fit, after you have your go to market fit really engineered, mm-hmm. right to be an engineer, you know, the salespeople will tell you it's an art, okay? But it's also a science. You need to have a repeatable sales motion. You need to know exactly what needs to happen, how many calls, how long this is going to take, do you need to be there, and you need something that you can show works for a number of large accounts or, or a very large number of small accounts. And only after you have that and you have done the math and you can show that there's, you know, that your return on investment is You know, within months, only then go and say, "Okay, now I'm ready to scale," and that's the pit where a lot of the startups fail. I've seen us do the mistake at Tarty Artizone. At at Mm -hmm. first, B2C business so very different, but we've identified a very similar mistake. The the first sales were very easy to achieve, and the customer acquisition was very low. We were surprised, and then we started growing very fast and realized that our customer acquisition cost grew fifteen times, not twenty percent, like. Uh, a thousand percent yeah and it breaks you so um, so these are the elements you need to be really
1: really careful about interesting so let's move on to ensure because this is a fascinating business in a pretty important market sector and it's probably a product of yours and and your co-founders experience from doing other uh, projects and landing on a uh, a product that is very much a definite need not a want um, in the marketplace so you've had a a brilliant start how have you managed to engineer yourself to be where you where you find yourself today and do you in probably the best place to start do you want just give an overview of exactly who you guys are
0: yeah sure so so actually we you know we started developing the product at Zeek Yeah. Right? so Zeek was a gift card marketplace. The company was established in 13. I was not part of it at the time. And it was hired later on, as I as I mentioned. And uh, selling gift cards online is tough. It's uh, very attractive to fraudsters. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time. And actually, when the company started, they started the business in Israel as a trial. And then when they figured out that it works, they launched it, not in the US this time, in the UK. Yeah. By the way, because of costs, right? Yeah. They decided to go to the UK because of costs. And the first week operating in the UK, um, they were very happy because they they ran out of inventory. They sold everything they had. A week later, they were very sad because 40% of it came back as chargebacks, nice. which means fraudsters bought the gift yeah. cards. And then eventually you're left with, with nothing. For a business that, you know, the margin best case is 4%, losing 40% of on, on fraud is, is a non-starter. So we realized that there's a big issue. We decided to invest in it in-house. My partner today at Insure was one of the founders there, Zeev. And he decided to invest in it heavily. And then sometime in 2018, we realized that what we're doing is immensely better than what the market has and decided to spin it out into its own company. So, as you said, you know, we've we've experienced the problem. We realized that there's no good solution out there. And because we had no intention of solving it on our own. It was not uh, you know, it was not something that we've decided we like doing, it was really something we couldn't afford not doing. And when we realized that what we've done is so much more efficient than what the market has we researched a little bit around it to see how big of a you know what what the funds like to call target you know total addressable market is there right what's the time and we realized that there is a big time a really big time and and it's not only gift cards it's basically everything that is attractive to fraudsters which is basically everything that is delivered immediately and has a resale value is liquid Mm -hmm. So, and that's very interesting for fraudsters because they can do fraud at scale. Fraudsters, if you think about, uh, you know, fraudsters are the people that are using stolen credit cards or bank accounts or PayPal's to buy stuff online or to steal stuff online. So the guys that do this as a business, what they do is they go, they buy a list of stolen financials on the dark web. And then what they need to do is they need to buy things and sell them using these payment methods in order to create a positive ROI, right? They're a business like everyone else. And now imagine the difference between buying and reselling a thousand iPhones and buying and reselling a thousand codes for a game on Xbox. Not the same, you know. Just it's not the same problem. So they are attracted to these to these type of products and gift cards are such products. We had no idea when we launched it. Crypto is is the same and NFTs, travel and ticketing is that, uh, games as I mentioned is that a lot of wallets and digital wallets. All of that is relevant when we realize that it's such a big total addressable market we decided to launch a company around it. And to be honest, it's taken longer than I expected because I'm happy with where we are, but I'm yeah. always a bit frustrated it's not faster. That's a, yeah. a common, a common uh, I think, that's my, uh, my, yeah. my state of life. So we started with something we know has a product market fit. There's no question about it. We know we do better than others. And still, it has taken us a long time to scale. I haven't started scaling the sales organization up to, uh, I want to say, slightly more than a year ago. So it took me two and a half years to decide to scale sales. It's not only, you know, it's a, it's also a matter of funds, but it's not that. It's we we didn't have what it takes. We didn't get to a place where I said, okay, I know how to do this. And and the reason for that is maybe it goes back to the same questions you've asked is the objections we encounter make it very, very difficult to sell, even though it's a no, it should be a no brainer. The objections are very difficult to uh, to overcome. I can take you through that. But it's, yep. uh,
1: so yeah, yeah, means you want to. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's a critical, I think it's a, it's a critical part. The, the yeah. particularly, uh, I think your knowledge comes from that, from being a second time founder and, and, and first time found that's where they do it. And and so much money gets burnt on hiring salespeople at the wrong time because they're yes. not cheap. And yes. if if it's not right, it's not ready. It's best to hold back for a bit. So to right. understand, it, I think it's a really important part because getting hiring right is a massive part. But knowing when to hire is yes. even is even more critical. So no, yeah, it'd be it'd be good to get your your <laughs> thought process on, on what that was and 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 why you made your decisions.
0: At first, it was you know, the board is always with you on that, right? Because yeah. they're... They want to see faster, better, higher, right? Up and to the right, up and to the right. So we were struggling to to close logos, right? We were struggling to close logos. And the key message we got is, is it's too good to be true. What The the story you're telling is too good to be true. And at first I was embarrassed to, to even say that because it sounds like it's not a problem right you have such a great product it's too good to be true yeah. why is it not selling like hotcakes right but but no actually uh, overcoming it's too good to be true is a significant problem and for us it is compounded so i'll, I'll explain in, in a yeah. few words so that you get the context so in our industry normally uh, fraud prevention managers would see a decline rate of 20, 25 percent. That's what they decline out of the out of the traffic that comes in in order to prevent fraud. And we're able to decline 2 to 5%. And they say it's too good to be true. What does that mean? It means, number one, that out of the 20 to 25% that they decline, only two to five are fraud. So they're doing a very bad job. Mm -hmm. Very bad job. Now they don't believe that. They believe they're doing a good job. And out of the 20 to 25%, Maybe fifteen to twenty are you know are bad actors, and maybe five percent are good actors. And it's the opposite, and they don't know that. Mm-hmm. They definitely don't believe me when I'm telling them that. There's no reason for them. So it's not only that it's too good to be true; it's too good to be true, and they're doing a very bad job. That's the that's the second piece. The third piece is we charge three times our our, our most expensive competitor. Yeah, so our most expensive competitors charge thirty basis points. 25 basis points, we charge 100 basis points. So we're too good to be true, it's impossible to do that. You're doing a bad job. It costs three to four times more than the next guy. And uh, very important, there's a job security issue. If we do what we do right, you don't have a team anymore, we replace the team. The combination of the four is a killer. Now, I'm telling you that you know. in five minutes, it took us probably a
1: year to figure out how to articulate it and how to find a way around it so what made you come to the decision to to find your 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 way around that because the a lot of people look at the it's too good to be true and think actually what i'm going to do is i'm going to hire five sales people and some of them will convince them that it's not too good to be true or it's just economy of scale. If I've got five people talking to a load of people, then eventually we'll we'll, we'll be able to, to land someone. So what made you put a, a, a line in the sand and go, right, we need to understand this. We need to find a way of overcoming it so that we can then bring someone in where there is a playbook where we say, right, when you get this objection, this is how you do it, or this is how you do it to make sure you don't get this objection. Why did you stop? rather than going, right, actually, let's just get a load of people in and talk to more people.
0: So, so you know, I'm very analytical in in the way I ask for, for information on this. And to be honest, we closed less than 8% of the accounts we we attacked. Right. The right number for, you know, from from a pipeline perspective, yeah. meaning so, yeah. from the time, no, not from the leads, right? So yeah. if you have a lead, it becomes a marketing qualified lead, it becomes a sales qualified lead, it becomes an opportunity. Yeah. From opportunity all the way down to close, we were at eight to ten percent. You should be at twenty five. Yeah, right. If yeah. you're at eight to ten, it doesn't work. Nice. It doesn't work. And now, if you're only attacking, you know, if you're only going after ten and you got one, it doesn't mean a lot. If you tried eighty and you got seven, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, go figure out what's what's broken. That's what I. That's what we did. So we we went out after enough of them to figure out that something doesn't work. And then we also figured out one other thing is that we were not attacking the right ones, right? We were attacking the smaller guys. Smaller guys are easier to get, but they're they're completely impractical for our business, at least for our product. That's another learning
1: piece. Yeah. yeah. Um so I think that's uh is great is to really understand and I think you know no one can set a product like a founder and really understanding the nuts and bolts of your customers, your potential customers because okay. A word about that. Sorry, sorry to catch you.
0: A word about that. That's—I I don't think that's true. To be honest, I'm not a good salesperson. I'm not. Um, I, I'm very good at doing the first sale Right? Yeah. It's difficult for someone else to do the first sales. No question about that. And yes, I did bring the first sales. Now that we have something more repeatable, I'll be a terrible salesperson. I'm telling you, if the guy that runs our sales today, the CRO, hired me as a salesperson, he'll terminate me in a month. <laughs> no
1: question. No question. <laughs> I- I think that there are there are people that you that you will hire um as salespeople, their their job is sales and it's what they do yeah. but a founder uh where it's what they created what they understand they yeah. understand the problem they they solved um yeah. and it also it, it does more often than not mean more to the founder than it does yeah. to the salesperson hence why they are normally a better sales than that person if they do the volume probably not and also yeah. You're better at creating products and creating things rather than sales, which is why you hire um, salespeople. You mentioned that you've got up to eight salespeople in North yes. America. Is that right? The team. The team is. How was that? It's it's a challenge to 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 hire out in 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 North America. Um we
0: terminated half. We terminated. We terminated four or five salespeople in the last
1: year. Yeah. What 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 have, what's been the biggest challenge that you could put your your finger on? Um, lack of sales leadership. I did
0: run sales, but I only ran a very large sales organization. I never ran a small sales organization ever. And that means that a lot of things that I took for granted were not Mm -hmm. done when I was running our sales. Accountability was not there. Rigorous uh, forecasting was not there. It just was not done well. Mm -hmm. And then people don't achieve the results. And then, you know, they're not good enough. The only people that do achieve are those that are completely independent, they don't care about what you tell them to do, they go yeah. do the same thing. And there are not a lot of them. So I think really it's about
1: my in incapacity in the sales leadership. Yeah. Did you did you decide to hire a sales leader in North America first or put some AEs in, in first to get some traction?
0: So so we started with a few AEs, mm-hmm. but the, the mistake I've made is that I didn't put in a sales leader that's high enough i yeah. hope that one of the people would be able to do that yeah. and that didn't happen and then, and that was a mistake as well you know we, yeah. again we recognize them as fast as we can and uh, actually we hired a cro just recently in q3 and he's doing an amazing job what, he has everything that
1: i'm lacking if you had your time again on it and you rolled the clock back 18 months would you have brought in a sales leader first um or still done it in a similar way, but I
0: would do this six months earlier, not 18 months. Yeah, yeah. I
1: would do this six because if I had brought him
0: 18 months earlier, he would go. I, yeah. actually I wouldn't be able to attract him. Yeah. He would ask the questions, I would give him the answers, and he would said, Hey, it's too early.
1: Yeah. And and the I want to touch on a part that you that you mentioned there that you hoped that one of the AEs that you brought on would have become the the leader and just Kind of get your thought process um, around that because it's, it's, if you can make that happen, um, it be really great. It's the best thing. The best yeah. thing. But awesome. what what I've always found from my, my my eighteen odd years of building sales teams and helping startups do it. The first AE on the ground is normally a bit more of a hustler, quite selfish, and doesn't normally have the traits of a leader within them to be able to do it. And then sometimes people will make the mistake of hiring a salesperson that looks like they've got the best credentials to go on and be that sales leader. And then they try being a sales leader, not an AE that you need. And sometimes it's about saying, I know what we need to achieve over the next 12 months. I need to hire someone that's going to be most effective for me in that role for the next 12 months and not find that person that's going to be, not to mean that someone can't move and do it. And, and, you know, I can point to a number of places where it is, but when, when people start to think that way, they normally, they don't necessarily hire for what they need right now. They've got one eye down the future and that helps more when you're a more established business and you're big and you've got things going on. But when it's the first boots on the ground, you then lack what is required in that in that first bit. You've got eight people in there now. You've got a CRO. What's the plans going forward for you guys? Um, so uh,
0: we need to be a bigger sales team at the end of this year. Yeah, sure. yeah, for sure. We're hiring. Uh, we're trying to hire two people a quarter, so doubling down. All in uh, North America, or um, no? So we 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 now have. Sorry, so the eight people are not only in North America. We have two of them in Europe actually. Okay, so we do have people in Europe as well now. Two of them, actually, one uh, one that leads the, the the SDRs and one that is a that is a sales exec that is joining yeah. towards the end of January. Nice. And, and, and you know, I, I do I want to relate to a few of the points you've made earlier. I think that yes, finding the person that would be able to do the transition, it's hard, and you can't. I think you can't tell up. No. You know, upfront. It's it's. Um, I, I'm at least I can't. Obviously, no. I've tried that a, a couple of times and failed. But it doesn't mean that I won't try it again. Well, you know, some of the things that you, that some of the mistakes you make, you, you avoid. I'm not sure that I'm going to avoid this mistake because this mistake means I'm giving people a chance. And if I decide not to give people a chance, I think that that's a much uh, a much, a much worse mistake I can make than the other one. So even though it's uh, it's delaying my progress, or the company's progress i think that that's a mistake i repeat because i think that it's better for the organization long term if i am able to do that
1: yeah i i totally agree the 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 bit on it though is to make sure that you are still hiring someone that's fit for the job that they're going to be doing yep. and that's i think that's yep. where people miss it slightly yep. saying right I, I want someone to have potential potential is the massive bit potential and coachability to move through but you're capable of doing this here that and, and i think that's where it gets dropped um yeah, I I think you're totally right
0: i agree i agree with that i agree with that so so you know for us it's really all about growth this year we need to grow our run rate mm-hmm. four times uh okay. the plan is run to grow that four times we have the pipe to do that we have uh, uh we have the pipe to do that uh, knock on wood knock on wood um the the, the economy is is tougher right yeah. so deals take longer to close so we might be struggling a little bit to uh, to achieve that but i think we're we're gonna be we're gonna be very close to that if not overachieve it. And to do that, you know, you need to build the organization. It's not only about the sales; it's the sales, yeah. is the best of a success. it's customer success. Yes, our, we have a lot of uh, fraud operations people that we need uh, we need on board as well. So it's really about scaling the org this this year.
1: Exciting times. Um- I've really enjoyed learning just a, a small bit um, about your uh, life. I'm going to be in Tel Aviv in uh, in February, so it'll be great okay. to, uh, to, to to meet up. And uh, I'd like I hope to it's not the first week. I'm uh, I'm I'm in New York
0: on the first week.
1: Okay, yeah. I'll make sure it's not the first week because um, uh, I would love to hear more about your time in um, in, in Chicago. Before I let you go, um, I know we've talked for probably longer than I said we would, but uh, I always give you the opportunity to ask me anything. And this is your, your chance to put me in the spotlight and uh, and ask me a question you've always wanted to ask a recruiter. Uh, so use your time wisely. <laughs> so I, I,
0: I, it's not a smart question, but it's uh, it's something that I've always wondered, right? So there are um, agencies or recruiters that are very good at one specific role, right? Mm-hmm. That, that do a great job on marketing and sales mm-hmm. or that do a great job on, on, on technical. And I can understand why, because mm-hmm. the sourcing part, it's very different for these jobs, and there are those that do a great job on on, on both aspects. Mm-hmm. You know what separates? How, how do you? How would you tell? As, how would you, as, how as would a founder, how yeah. would I find
1: a recruiter that can do both really well, or should I? Maybe I should. So, so what? A, a recruiter that can do really good at sales and develop and placing technical people um so so i think you've got the the thing being is is it's a bit like saying could you find a developer that could do your sales the thing about it is that knowing what a good developer is and having the network and the volume the the two hardest so you've picked on the the two hardest roles to fill are sales and technical hires technical hires there just aren't enough talent there for it So therefore, you need a recruiter that knows the market inside out, knows the technologies, knows where they're going, knows their language, knows where they're hanging out, knows what makes them tick. Okay, I don't know what makes a developer tick. And for each different coding language, it's going to be something different. And they need to be talking to those people all the time because a good recruiter, nine times out of 10, does not move a unemployed person they're going to find you the best person. So they need to be talking to that person all the time. There needs to be an element of trust around it. And that's where it is on on the sales side um, of it. You, You need someone to know who are the top performing salespeople? Where are they? What are they doing? What are their numbers? What are they closing out? What's their average deal size? And so that means that our recruiters need to be talking to salespeople all the time. And when you're doing that across the globe, there's only so many hours in a day to be able to be an expert in your field of what you do. Um, to be able to um, to make that happen so I would say that if you've got a combination of both they're not going to be as good as a pro who's focusing within their lane who who's going to go out there and 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 it's not about bringing that a player it's about bringing the person that's most suitable for you at that time and yeah. understanding it um, and being able to do it does that answer your question
0: yeah yeah it does it does i've uh i've been uh, you know usually we have you know we have different agencies for uh yes. for tech. We, i've encountered one that seems to be doing a good job on both so i good. was kind of wondering to to hear your perspective about that and yeah i think it makes yeah.
1: sense yeah. Awesome. All right, sir, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I know there's going to be a lot of people that will be able to take a lot from this. I think it's great to hear that you've been to North America. You've learned from that second time founder with a lot of success um, uh, under your belt, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how this year goes for you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. James. it awesome. Pleasure. Was a pleasure. It was a pleasure.